Welcome to They Live by Film, a film discussion podcast focusing on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam Lundy, and I am joined as always by my co-hosts, Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. How are you doing today, guys? Hey there. Uh, I'm doing good, doing good. How are you doing, Adam, since you've been dealing with a little bit of the, the COVID? Yeah, I'm, I've been fine the last few days. I'm still testing positive, but um, yeah, but I've been fine. Um, it was kind of rough about like last weekend. It was pretty rough. I sort of stayed in bed most of the day, but it was just kind of like a flu, luckily enough. So um, that's what the, the the vaccine's there for. So yeah, I'm all I'm all I'm all G. You why are you so late to the party? I feel like people were getting Omicron like a month ago. I know. I, I was actually really annoyed because I had gone this long without getting COVID. I thought I was like the world's worst X Man. Where, I, where my special power was that I couldn't get COVID. Um, but no, uh, Neve went out with her friends. It was like her first night out when all the pubs reopened about three weeks ago. And her friend texted her on the Monday afterwards. So Monday, not mo- Monday, gone Monday the week before. And she was like, I'm positive for COVID. And Neve was already not feeling great. So she did a test and she was positive for COVID. And I went the whole week still doing tests every day, negative, 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 finished work on Friday, positive, a whole weekend ruined, been positive all this week, still positive as of today, Sunday. So been over a week now, still testing positive, but the line is really faded. So I'm hoping maybe tomorrow I'll be in the all clear, but yeah, the last two weekend plans have been, have been ruined because of it, but I've, you know, I've been fine. You know, at least I didn't have to go to a, to the hospital or anything like that. So I can't complain. Yeah. Well, sorry, man. Yeah, we've had, we've had, our, maybe this is kind of like a sickness episode because luck, I mean, hopefully we don't get sick, but we found out we have, uh, we've had mold in our, in our house for the last seven years. It was kind of hiding behind a cabinet. Um, and um, so we're, we're in a temporary lo- lodging as we try to get that fixed. I'm literally recording this in a closed closet right now um, in our temporary lodging so there's a good chance our, our little one busts in but we're all kind of living on top of each other i want to note if i get sick chris is the one that just jinxed me <laughs> <laughs> cool so uh we're gonna hop in with this episode it's uh basically a, a walking in the desert special we've been doing kind of special episodes the last couple we had our hitchcock special we had our elusive asian cinema special this is a walking in the desert special uh, so we're going to kick off the discussion with a film from 1971 uh, by a very talented director uh, called Nick Roeg uh, called Walkabout. Uh, for those who may not be familiar with the film, just to give you the brief sort of synopsis from IMDb, as we always do. Uh, two city-bred siblings stranded in the Australian outback where they learn to survive with the aid of an Aboriginal boy on his walkabout, a ritual separation from his tribe. Uh, like that sums it up it's a pretty basic film just in terms of like it's it's standard narrative it does have obviously thematic weights through it but it is basically these two these two sort of white city kids end up stranded in the desert and they meet an aboriginal boy and they all sort of bond and try and survive together um i'd seen this before i'd seen it during the summer i have second sights release which is gorgeous straight shout out to uh, second sight friends of the podcast um have you guys seen it before? Is this your first time seeing Walkabout? This was my second. Second? Cool. What about you, Chris? Yeah, third time, third time for me. 
third okay cool it's a very well-known film i'm not surprised we had all seen it um coming in when it was sort of chosen for the week it's a very very well-known film um and just before we go into the film itself are we fans of nick rogue i love don't look now that's one of my favorites yeah i was about to say the same thing i'm a i'm a big don't look now guy actually i actually haven't seen any of his other films apart from walkabout and don't look now at least i don't think i have i'm actually going to his i'm curious i don't think i have either i know that um his film with david bowie the man who fell to earth is very very beloved but uh, yeah that was the one i was going to call out i love i love that one i've Um, heard the witches is good is that the real doll one it is yes and then he also yeah, has one probably. with um with Art Garfunkel. I can't remember the name of. Um, but yeah, he has a film that stars Art Garfunkel, which is always fun. Nice. Yeah. So yeah, cool. Walkabout fans and <laughs> Nick Roig fans. When I say walkabout fans, we haven't talked about it. Did we I, I assume because obviously Chris, you've seen it three times now. Obviously, only one of them we went to film club. So I assumed you liked it enough that you'd already seen it twice, let alone a third time. How do you stand with Walkabout? What did you think? What's your first thoughts? Yeah, so the world rates it as the 712th movie of all time. Okay, that's pretty Um, pretty fine. Yeah, yeah, I'm okay with that. It's right above um, They Live By Night. So our namesake. Yeah, it's right there up, snuggled up against Nicholas Ray. So... The two Nicholases are uh, snuggled up next to each other here. <laughs> and the next one on the list is Smiles of a Summer Night and then Miller's Crossing. So, you know, it's it's sort of, um, I feel like it's appropriate in that kind of range. Yeah. Um, both in terms of influence and also just in quality. Um, For sure. You know, it's just watching this movie, uh, there's so much to dissect here, but I'll just say watching this movie uh, again, you know, any surprise around like what he's trying to do is is sort of is gone now, right? You kind of, you, you understand what he's doing and you kind of get that this is a metaphor or, you know, this is sort of his, his view on uh, modernization and, and his, his, his view on uh, maybe commercialism and sort of like how we're responding to, you know, material, uh, to, you know, buying too much and all this kind of stuff. We'll, we'll get into all these themes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is pretty heavy handed, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> it's not subtle. Um, and I think that comes through more every the more you watch it, uh, but it doesn't make me enjoy it less. This just a, it's a, it's a movie with a message that is very clear, and and you know I, I understand what he's trying to do, and I still like it a lot. What about you, Isaac? Um, I really liked it. I'm trying to think. I think the first time I saw it is I got it from the library when I was in college, um, just because I like Australia stuff. Same, pretty cool. Uh, I watched it. I really liked it. Um, I did get a little bit more out of it this time because it's been, see, that would have been probably like 2011. So it's been over 10 years, not 2011, about 2013. So it's been almost 10 years, I'll say, since the last time I saw it. It's a um, great message. I, I like, um, I, it's really, one of the things that I, I find about this movie, it's kind of hard to describe because part of it has like this grittiness to it, like this, overwhelmed like almost almost like an overwhelming dread but it never mm-hmm. feels mean-spirited to that extent yeah, yeah. like and I, I find that really enjoyable like you know as, as dark as the film can get i never feel like i'm just 
completely depressed by the end of it, which is kind of nice um, because I think that it would be easy to go down that route. Uh, I, I really appreciated it uh, this time around. Uh, I'm glad I got a chance to rewatch it. Yeah, it's a very visceral film. Probably the best way to sort of describe it. it um, like I said, it has that sort of dread, but has that sort of hip, hypnotic nature to it as well. Um, and, and like you said, Chris, you know, it is, it's not subtle, um, but I think it is, it's possible to be heavy handed, but also still be good. Um, sometimes when a, when a film is heavy handed, you feel like you're being talked down to. I don't feel like that would walk about. Like, yeah. maybe heavy handed isn't even the right word. Maybe it's just, it seems are sort of put out on display um, like anyone even a first time watcher can really sort of gather the themes of this film which is always good as well you don't want to feel like you're having to go sort of watch a film 20 times just to get it um, it's always nice when you have a film like this that is that has a ton of artistic merit um, but it's still relatively accessible um, you, you don't feel like you need to have a PhD to sort of understand the themes and still also enjoy the film which was a little bit of a breath of fresh air compared to uh, trying to figure out what we watched last week. Oh yeah, for sure. This is like, yeah, this, this is kind of like how to do that kind of film and not piss off half your audience. Um, <laughs> um, in regards to Zigorn, uh, Zigorn and, uh, and long day's journey into the night Two two also sort of visceral films, hypnotic films, but walkabout I feel has a lot more, um, I would also say not more meat on the bone because that kind of makes me imply that the other films are quite thin when they're not. Um, maybe this one's a bit more rare, medium rare and the others are a bit more well done. The same amount of meat is there, just kind of harder to chew. Is that a, <laughs> does that metaphor work? Yeah, I think nice. it works. <laughs> um, so yeah, um, in terms of deep diving that into Walkabout, um, as I, you, you threw about a couple of themes there. I think people can kind of maybe take different things from it. Like a few of them maybe are a bit more obvious. That sort of idea of escaping from the sort of modern world, going back to nature um, is one that I think most people cling on to. Uh, it's probably the most obvious, especially with the ending. Um, was there any other themes that you guys took from this? Like there's one in particular that I kind of take away, that I took away when I, when I had seen it. Colonialism. Um, that was that. That's kind of where I always end up at. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I, I could. I could see where, where I could see that. Was there anything in particular that that made that sort of jump out to you? The the big one. I hate it because it's. I don't know how to talk about it without spoiling it. Let's just say the fate of one of the main characters, mm -hmm. and how it happens is very much. Okay. Yeah, I get you. Blankets in America, sort of idea. Yeah, no, I'm wondering though, like Nicaragua's British film set in Australia, does that translate? I mean, you can still be pretty like, I, I can't speak for how British people see colonialism. I'm not, I, I can't, I, you know, I won't say one way or the other. I guess you can still be kind of critical of that though, right? Like, even yeah, if it was, yeah. yeah um, well, look, I suppose with this kind of film, you can sort of, you can put your own context to it. Um, I was just, I was just curious if that would be something that would even go to, like personally, like if, if, you know, I'm Irish, if I was going to make a film, I wouldn't really take into account American history um, when I'm thinking up my themes. Um, 
but it's interesting that a film can do that though that obviously you know you you take a certain context from you know the history that you've grown up with and you can apply it to a film that would seem to have no real connection but it still works it's not like you're doing it you know uh, you know in an asinine way yeah and i, I you know like i said i can't I, I don't know if the um aboriginals in australia went through a similar idea that the native americans did i assume there was at least some some comparison to be made there i don't know how much but um that's a big reason i just took that away from it and i don't and i don't know the answer either to be honest with you but i would i would make a similar assumption assumption to yourself um like what one thing that i kind of took away from it um was this idea of like sexual awakening um especially with the with the girl character um you know she starts off quite innocent um she has that kind of dynamic with the aboriginal boy and and he is obviously on this sort of walkabout which is this sort of journey into manhood um, that that the aboriginal people will, will sort of do when when a boy his age is on the cusp of manhood they'll go and do this so sexual awakening um was was a theme that i really took away from it obviously she has that scene where she goes swimming naked in the in the creek um, which can see, you know, as an idea maybe of her shedding away her, you know, she, she takes off her school uniform to do it. So maybe, you know, it's an idea of her shedding her youthfulness um, to become sort of more like a, more of a, more of a woman, uh, if that makes sense. And then obviously there's, there's this sort of part at the end, which we'll talk about the end, sort of maybe later towards this segment, because we always like to talk about the endings. And I think this one really needs talking about because uh, it's such a, such a um, cathartic ending. Um, so mm-hmm. I think it is important to speak about it at some point, but yeah, that that sort of sexual awakening was a theme that I that I took away. Was there anything different that you took from it, Chris? Well, um, yeah, no, I, I I see definitely both sides of of what y'all are saying. There there was this interesting thing that I kind of picked up on around the 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 different ways that the the children reacted to the Aboriginal boy, right, and. The if and so the movie just just really quickly the movie starts off with their father trying to kill the kids right he drives mm-hmm. them out to a desert and he tries to kill them or shoot them right and they basically run away and that's the beginning of their walkabout right yeah and one of the things that I kept I mean there's no spoiler there that's the first five minutes of the movie right and for sure the the thing that I was trying to figure out this time through is why like why does he do that um because it kind of sets up this really extreme crazy scenario right away um and and here's kind of the best i could come up with and it's tied to the theme so the closer the the kids are to being born the more uh open-minded they are towards the aboriginal boy right the younger kid the younger the younger uh white boy is able to communicate better, is is able to uh, understand the Aboriginal boy better, starts to become like more in sync with him faster. And then the girl, uh, Jenny Aguder, is older, struggles with it, right? She, she there's, there's times where she's like frustrated with the Aboriginal boy because she can't understand him. And I think one of the things I picked up on this time through that this is interesting for me was like the further you get away from birth and the more you've kind of been indoctrinated into this, this Western ideology, this Western way of life, um, 
the harder it is to go back. Like it's almost like you're losing that innocence, right? And you're it, by the time you get to a, an adult, it can actually drive you crazy. Um, because you, you're so far. Maybe maybe because I don't know exactly why, but maybe because you're so far disconnected from what you were meant to be. Or, or who we are meant to be, which is kind of like of the earth, right? I, I don't know, That that's one possible explanation. But um, yeah, it was interesting kind of seeing it through that uh, because it it made a, it brought a lot of the movie into focus for me, I guess, in, in terms of how the characters kind of reacted to uh, their walkabout. You know, I like that. That kind of reminds me of um, kind of the themes of The Wicker Man, the original, not the, not the Bees one. Um, but this idea that you know, it's very much more of a paganistic, you know, if you say of the earth type of religion versus the more Christian, the more Western one and how they sort of interact. Now, I would say this one has not necessarily a more positive view on it, but maybe compared to Wicker Man. <laughs> but uh, I, I can definitely see that. For <laughs> sure, and I, I would say that makes sense. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up the... Um the loss of innocence aspect uh, that, that totally makes sense to the point you're making you know with the younger kid and um, being able to communicate a little bit better and um, that sort of idea of you know like you said the sort of closer you are to birth the more innocent you are the more in tune with the earth that you are and you become more and more disillusioned by modernity as as you sort of get older uh, like you said to the point of you know where where the father literally wanted to um wanted to kill himself and his kids um, I don't that's that's pretty much as as disillusioned with life as you can get really to drive you to yeah. murder suicide um it's funny that that um that you mentioned about Christianity Zach because I know that when I was reading about this film before like a few months ago after I had originally seen it there was this sort of parallel that that a lot of scholars put with the outback and the Garden of Eden um with this being with this sort of outback and this sort of oasis kind of being like their idea of paradise because you're not bogged down by the modern world. You can just live free, live as yourself, live off the land. Um, so I just found that interesting um, that, that you had mentioned about the, the sort of Christianity aspect of it. Oh, that's super interesting. Okay. And so there's a, there's like a, uh, it's like harder to find the garden of eden maybe the further you get away from the innocence like uh, yeah precisely exactly so and and this kind of that and that kind of ties into the ending as well which we'll get to later um yeah that that sort of trying to get back to the garden of eden aspect after after you've left it you know it's, it's like i'm not obviously you guys know from previous discussions i'm not a, i'm not you know i'm not really a christian or anything like that so I don't know too much about the theology the aspect, aspect, but I think the sort of central idea of, you know, when Adam and Eve get kicked out of the Garden of Eden is that they can never go back. They've sort of lost their innocence and they can never get back there again, um, which is which sort of seems like it could be a theme of this film as well. You know, once you're there, you're there. If you leave, you're never going to sort of get that paradise back. Yeah, and I think it connects to that pretty well um, when you kind of see the bookmark of this. I'll, I'll be vague for now, but, you know, we get to see sort of events that happened after the main part of this film and how it kind of parallels to the beginning. And I guess that question of 
do you get re-lost if it's found again and that sort of idea. So yeah, I can, I definitely see that. I like that actually. Away from the thematic aspect for a moment, um, there's, there's one thing that so kind of confused me about this film. I don't know if you guys maybe have more insight into it. Um, the sort of, that sort of subplot with the people with the weather balloons. Any, anyone have any inkling as to why that's even there? The scientists? That would probably be a great Chris question because I have no idea. Yeah. There, I mean, it's, I, I, I'm assuming if, if we're saying that, you know, Rogue wasn't exactly subtle with his, you know, imagery and kind of metaphor, then I'm assuming they represent science, right? Um, and okay. if that's true, I mean, I don't know. I'm just saying I, that that would follow that, you know, he's using them as like a representative of something, I guess, right? Um, if that's true, it, they're, you know, they're kind of clumsy characters. And maybe it's a, it, it's possible that it's a way to say like, look at the best we've been able to do with all our modern science and technology versus this like, you know, kid who was brought up on the land and how comfortable he is reacting to like any situation that comes at him. Um, you know, like we, like we spend so much time trying to predict the weather um, with all of our best tools and equipment. And yet here's this kid who's off on his own for a month or three months or whatever it is. Um, and he, he never thinks about the weather. Like that's not something he, you know, concerns himself with. He just reacts to it because he knows how to survive. M maybe that, I don't know, but that, that might be a stretch. <laughs> no, it actually makes a ton of sense because I couldn't really figure a, a logical reason for why they were, there just kind of seemed like a weird subplot that didn't really mean a whole bunch but if we're looking at this film as a as an allegory then yeah that that, that makes a ton of sense that, that that i'm happy with that explanation <laughs> we'll try to get rogan uh to explain that bit i have to get his we'll have to get to say on the the ouija board out because he died a couple of years ago didn't he yeah uh, actually, i don't he died yeah 2018 so if any of us are mediums then we will try and communicate with the ghost of nick rogue to ask which i think uh yep he did i just checked uh david Capilli, who uh played the um aboriginal he's all he passed away um not long ago actually just a few months ago oh wow he, must, he, was, he was big in australian cool. cinema yeah he acted in quite a few films right yeah, he was in, you know, just to give a couple of examples, uh, apparently his most famous is Rabbit Proof Fence, which is apparently a big movie in Australia. I haven't seen it. Uh, Crocodile Dundee, Australia. Um, Cargo, that came out a few years ago. Um, he was in the show The Leftovers. Um, so he was definitely a big name in Australia. That's probably where my lack of uh, knowledge for Australian cinema sort of starts to show itself. So I think I've only seen this and picnic a hanging rock don't think i've seen any other oh i'm lying um muriel's wedding which is a great film with tony collette um those are the only australian films i've seen there's i haven't seen mad max yet man no i haven't never seen ah, any mad this... max movies Oof. gotta get on that i know i know what zach's picking next turn around <laughs> 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 I'm gonna start so out of I'm just gonna pick the third one because it doesn't matter. I'm just gonna pick the third one. 
Um, yeah, there's a just before <laughs> since we got off on a little bit of an Australian genre kick, um, there's this great movie called Dead End Drive-In. Super fun. It's like uh, uh, kind of a Mad Max style thing, but it's it's contained within a, a drive-in theater. Um, uh, really kooky movie, but it's super fun. So if you're if you're on an Australian kick, make sure you throw that one in the mix as well. I'm just uh, I'm just I'm currently looking at the Wikipedia page for the for the girl to see if she if she was in anything. She's been in so much random stuff. Like she was in Child's Play two. Who who was she in? Wait, who is she in Child's Play two? She is someone called Joanne Simpson. Oh, okay. Oh, I didn't even realize that was her. Okay. Are you talking about Jenny Agutter? Yeah. Oh man, she's like she's like a sci-fi darling she's like uh, a mount rushmore of these kind of 70 sci-fi movies did you she's in the avengers she, yeah, she's in the first two avengers movies yeah yeah it's one of those old kind of like giving respect to somebody who's been there kind of roles did, have y'all have y'all seen logan's run no, yes i, I love logan's run yeah that was my introduction to her like that was one of the oh, man that's like a movie of my kind of like late child, late, late, you know, high school kind of college. I watched that movie so many times. Um, I've heard about Logan's run. I've never, no, I've never seen it though. But yeah, she's one of the leads. Interesting. I just, I assumed she was just one of these people who were in these kind of films and, you know, never did anything else ever again. Um, but no, um, she's had quite the, quite a successful career and she's still alive. So shout out to Jenny Agata if you're listening. Um, you can be a, a friend of the podcast. Please. <laughs> I'll talk to you about Child's Play too. <laughs> uh, so do we want to get in on the ending then? Or was there anything else we wanted to kind of bring up prior? Um, one thing I will bring up prior is um, we've talked a lot about the thematic. Uh, I really like how experimental, like at least I assume it is for a lot of, like a lot of the camera work and a lot of the techniques and the transitions, like, one I, I love every time I watch it, I think they do it twice in the movie, is where it's like cutting from the city and it shows it like going past the brick wall and then it's just the outback. I just think that's a really neat, like, I, I don't know if motif's the right word, but, you know, transition to like those two ideas. Um, and there was a little bit of that I noticed throughout the film where he would kind of do these different sort of transition and camera work that, I, you know, I think works in a film like this where, there's not a lot to film as far as, you know, in the desert. Uh, so I just think it was kind of a nice touch overall. Well, he, yeah. Uh, oh, you go ahead, Adam. No, I was just, just going to say, yeah, it's a super dynamic looking film. Uh, like a lot of the way the sort of rocks and stuff are filmed did remind me a bit of Picnic at Hanging Rock, um, just in terms of yeah. how they sort of shot that sort of deserty uh, scenes. But uh, yeah, it's a super dynamic film. That's all I was going to say, really. Okay. There's the, the one that everybody always quotes where it's like that cut to the butcher shop, right? Like there, there's like a, there's like a knife that comes down and then it cuts immediately into a butcher and like a cow getting slaughtered versus the way that they're kind of eating in the, um, in the outback um, mm. or the slaughterhouse or whatever. There's like a lot of that kind of things where he, he'll do like a quick cut between the worlds and it's jarring a little bit, but it, but it makes sense, right? As the, as you see it. Um he was a second unit photographer on Lawrence of Arabia before he did this. So the oh, guy has David Lane. <laughs> yeah. So the guy has some cinematic chops. 
um, uh, specifically around camera work. So I guess it's in, in some ways it's it's appropriate to call out his camera work. He was he was very accomplished in that area before he started making his own movies. Yeah, he was also the cinematographer for The Mask of the Red Death from Roger Corman and True Foes Fahrenheit four five one. Yeah. So he's worked with some he's worked with some big names in cinema before he before he got his own. Um, and he oh I did, he was also yeah he was cinematographer for this as well which makes sense um, so it's it's cool to see you know I I, I always it, you don't really see it a lot but I, I always like when archers do their own camera work because um, you know sometimes with a with a director and they work with different cinematographers you can see like there's a there's a particular style but there's always kind of like a like a difference. Um, like there's a clear difference in Ingmar Bergman films when he isn't isn't working with Sven Nickvist, for example. Um, yeah. So when you when you have someone doing their own cinematography, it's like you're seeing like the most sort of clear vision of the director because not only is he sort of planning the shots with, with a DP, he's he's filming them like he's planning them all by himself and filming them all by itself. I could see that it probably wouldn't work for a lot of directors. It could become very indulgent um, or they simply just might not have the technical ability to pull it off. Um, but obviously with Nick Rogue, with the amount of experience he had prior to directing, it kind of makes sense for him to have, to have done it himself, at least at the start of his career. I like that. That's well said. Also, imagine working with David Lean on a production of Lawrence of Arabia and then going to work with Roger Corman, just like, the lessons you've that's like the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of like big budget Hollywood filmmaking versus independent scrappy, like, <laughs> you know, like that, what an amazing way to learn uh, about the, the process and business of filmmaking from those two kind of uh, uh, yeah. Opposite ends of the, of the world there. Yeah, for sure. Um, Cause this is essentially like a low budget movie, right? Like it's, it's like an independent, I mean, I don't know exactly how it was financed and stuff, but I'm just saying like, if he's doing the camera work and he's writing it and you know, this is, a, it's, it's probably a very, um, it, it probably felt like a very independent production. Yeah. It's budget was a million dollars, apparently according to Wikipedia. No, yeah, um, okay. So I don't know. I don't know how the context is. If that's like a big budget for, for an Australian produced movie. Let me just see if I can find the budget for Picnic at Hanging Rock. Okay, yeah, the budget for Picnic at Hanging Rock was half of that, in fact. So that's really interesting. Considering Picnic at Hanging Rock was made like four years later. Yeah. It's interesting. Australian, a million Australian dollars. I think that's only like 30 American dollars. I don't know. I, I don't <laughs> know. Somewhere around there. No, I'm I don't just know kidding. what. I think it's pretty close. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. Cool. So, do we want to go in on the ending then, just to sort of wrap this segment up? Yeah. Cool. I'll put timestamps, listeners. Don't worry. I'll put I'll put timestamps in for when we're sort of finished talking about this. But um, honestly, I don't think I don't think you'll miss too much by knowing how this film ends. Um, so we kind of get to the to the apex of the film when they get to that sort of that sort of uh, abandoned sort of farm and they they almost sort of turn it into like almost like a commune and this kind of ties into I suppose there's there's a lot of sort of 60s counterculture stuff in this film as well 
um, and this kind of farm that they sort of begin sort of setting up shop in almost um, they, they do that and the film really sort of takes a turn when the Aboriginal boy does like this kind of mating ritual dance to the girl, you know, in hopes of, you know, you know, of, uh, of mating with her, obviously it's the mating ritual. I couldn't think of a better way to say it. Um, courting, I think is the courting. So, yes, yeah. That's a good, that's a much nicer way of putting it. Um, obviously she, she, you know, is obviously very scared. She hides from him and, you know, he eventually sort of, eventually sort of backs down and, and, and then we come across a scene that you alluded to earlier, Zach, where, you know, he's, he's hung himself. Um, what, what do we take from this? Cause it's a, it's a very, it's a very different scene to what we've kind of seen for most of the film, apart from the very start, you know, where the, where, where the father tries to kill them and he kills himself. So su- this is not the first suicide we see in this film. Um, but, you know, up until then, up, you know, from then until now, it was all very much about surviving, you know, in the outback, this sort of paradise that they had found, and then all kind of comes crashing down. What, what, what do we think of that sort of, that, that sort of segment? I don't know. I mean, if we if we're going with the themes of the movie, I guess it it kind of could say like this is this is what it, it all leads to eventual destruction, right? Like it all. I I don't know. I actually don't have a good answer for the ending. I don't know if y'all have thought about it at all. That's one piece I haven't really fully cracked yet. I'll I'll try. Um... So you, you mentioned that, you know, he kills himself very similar to the, how the father does. And in a way, we're, we're kind of talking about it's this um, industrial versus of the land sort of ideals that even though there is this separation, there is this tragedy and this, these emotions that do still connect them. You know, obviously they are dealing with very different traumas and emotions and things of that nature but the actions themselves are still the same and in that sense that it's there there's such a divide between this western culture and this aboriginal culture but there is this very tragic um ideal and actions that do bring them to be closer in a very morbid way And that can kind of tie into what I was thinking about as well with this was, you know, we'd mentioned that sort of Garden of Eden, that sort of uh, this sort of, this is kind of like the innocence when you're going through and working off the land. Could this maybe be where the loss of innocence sort of reaches its apex and they sort of lose their paradise? You know, the d- despite, you know, what I'd said earlier about, you know, the film kind of being about a sexual awakening, you know, it's clear that, you know, despite all this, she is still sort of not ready for that world fully. They kind of, they, they, they go into this, this sort of, um, go into this, um, this farm that has sort of, been, you know, it's kind of like a space between worlds, between the industrial world and the living off the land world, but it being a farm and sort of getting a taste of that industrial world, 
maybe makes her realize perhaps she doesn't want to be, you know, in this more uh, naturalistic setting. And that's why she rejects him. And then, you know, he realizes that it's not, you know, that this can't go on forever and that maybe the industrial world will eventually take over. And that's why he decides to kill himself. My honest answer is I don't know. I, I kind of struggled with that part of it as well to kind of come up with a, you know, come up with a, what's the word I'm trying to work, I'm trying to look for just something that kind of works with the themes that were already established rather than just being a random event. Um, yeah, the best I could sort of come up with was, was you know, that sort of apex of the loss of innocence to the point where now the Aboriginal has also lost his innocence and he doesn't want to sort of go further down that road into potentially going into modernism and things like that. So he prefers to just end it. If I talk nonsense, please tell me. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm just more thinking about it because it is, it is an interesting idea and it, it does, it doesn't feel random. Like, you know, there are certain events in some movies where it's just kind of violence for violence sake, but I don't think that's what we have here. There's definitely like, purpose behind it and it's just kind of trying to figure out exactly what it is yeah because like on the surface level it feels like you know it feels very asinine oh he was rejected so he's going to kill himself you know I, I feel like this film up until this point has been too intelligent to do that now look maybe maybe that's this was the case i know this was based on like a short story so this may be, maybe this is just Rogue just taking it from the ending of the book. Um, so maybe it is that simple, you know, but I feel like the film, because we've seen a lot of layers and themes, I feel like it would be to do the film an injustice just to assume it's something as simple as that. Perhaps we'll never know. Chris, you have any thoughts? You know, it's interesting when you just you know uh what's his name uh when roeg described the film um he used the term it's a simple story or he used this kind of this this short phrase he said it's a simple story about life and being alive not covered with sophistry but just addressing the most basic human themes birth death and immutability what is mutability oh immutability just... is tendency to change okay so, yeah, I mean, I think that ties into everything we're saying. I, I, I don't have any problem with the, the tentative conclusion we reached for that. <laughs> okay. So if we move on then to the actual ending of the film itself, which I found very cathartic. Um, so it's, it's the girl character, but it's kind of like it's a few years later. She's grown up. She's a housewife she's in the kitchen her husband comes home and starts babbling on about some office bullshit um and it kind of cuts away then to her either imagining or remembering you know her the aboriginal boy and her younger brother sort of swimming skinny dipping in a in a pond um and i i, I found that an incredibly powerful ending you know she's still she's still imagining this sort of innocent time that she had um you know this sort of almost almost sort of almost like a dream it's like a, it's like it's almost like it wasn't real and it's something it's kind of like a dream she sort of chases after her lungs for 
so I, I thought the ending was was phenomenal. That sort of last couple of moments where where she she sort of tunes out her husband's bullshit office bureaucratic crap and just sort of imagines this more innocent time in her life. Yeah, she knows better now, right? Like even if she's chosen to go back into the the real world or or her 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 real world, I should say she knows better she knows there's something else out there and that never fully it's like left an impression on her kind of right i that, i like the ending a lot as well she's like um she's living in the world but she's not fully a part of it right like that that experience can never fully leave her yeah and i mean you know there's um i'll kind of use an example there's people go on walkabouts now it's not just an aboriginal thing you can sign up and do it in australia you know you gotta commercialize that now but it still has a point, you know, the idea that her and her brother did go on this walkabout, even if they never definitely didn't plan to do that. They were supposed to just have a picnic out in the outback. And, you know, the whole idea behind the walkabout is to, you know, it's that sign of adulthood, that sign of, you know, of finding yourself, finding what you find is real and whether or not her decision, it's not she doesn't choose it out of ignorance. She chooses it because she's actually experienced it and she became a, a different person because of it. And it shaped who she became and the decision she made, um, which is really, you know, and essentially cool to experience this culture for her and probably her brother and all that, just because she got an opportunity that she didn't ask for, but she still took something positive out of a pretty horrible situation. Yeah. yeah. There, there's, it's funny that this is coming up twice now. Um, this is, it's, uh, it's also in the Daisuke episode. We talked a little bit about this, but you know, the, this idea of the third culture kid, I know, um, Zach, we kind of talked about it a little bit. Adam, have you ever heard that term before? No, I don't think so. So the basic premise is no matter what culture you're born into, if you're not raised up in that culture or the culture of your parents is, is one of the ways it's described then sometimes you can kind of feel like you're caught in between two different identities. Like you, like um, for, it happens a lot for kids that grow up like overseas uh, where they're not fully connected to their home country, uh, but they're not fully embraced by their sort of, you know, upbringing, the country of their upbringing because they're not from that nationality either. So their identity is kind of caught in the middle a little bit. Right. And I think that I don't, you know, I'm not saying she's like a third culture kid here, but I think that the spirit of that is similar in that she, even if she's living in Melbourne now or Sydney or whatever, she, she can never fully be a part of that because she has something that was so touching and personal that happened. Like that's always going to be there for her. Speaking of uh, modernity and commercialism, let's talk about Collection Corner. I, uh, I I am unashamed to say that I would last for 30 minutes in the Outback. That is not something I could do. Um, but um, look, as far as collecting goes, I have two things I kind of want to talk about quickly. One of them is, so 88 Films now has a U.S. line, um, specifically released in Region A and distributed in Region A. And they're pumping out titles pretty fast. I mean, you know, I, 88 films in general has had kind of an amazing run here in the last year or two. And now we're getting the benefit of that in, in region a. So they have, um, 
yeah, these five titles. And, you know, it's interesting because the way that 88 Films works is a little bit like Kino, uh, where they have different lines. They'll have like the Asian cinema line and they'll have like, you know, the Italian cinema line. And there's a different uh, uh, look and, and feel to these different lines. So I think, you know, the Italian line has a very distinct kind of font and packaging and Asian cinema the same. And then they have their classic Hollywood line, I think. I forget exactly what they call it, but there's something like that. So, in, in the, and that's carrying over to the US as well. So they have this, the first movie is this video nasty that I think is still technically banned in the UK. Um, and it has the pleasant sort of kid-friendly title of the Gestapo's Last Orgy. Um, and oh. then after that, they go into mostly Asian cinema for the, for the next four releases. And then as they expand, you know, they're going to be all over the place. So uh, I'm excited to see what they do. Um, people don't talk about 88 films as much as I feel like they should. They pack, you know, their, their stuff is packed with special features, uh, really nice art design, beautiful packaging. And uh, yeah, I, I really like this label. I'm going to really like them. Um, and then I secondly, just I'll just quickly, you, you, what did you get? I was going to say, I just bought my first 88 films film like a, a two or three weeks ago. Um, because Arrow released it in Region A and not in Region B, part of releasing it, sorry. And I'm like, that's a bit weird. Arrow normally will release it, you know, in both places. And it's the one, I can't remember the title, it's about like a pole fighter, some, something along those lines. Um, yeah, yeah, me... yeah. Um, Shaolin pole fighter, hold on. It's... There it is, the H diagram pole fighter. Oh yeah, eight diagram pole fighter. Yeah, yeah, there yeah. you go. Eighty-eight films have that in region B. And I was I haven't watched it yet, but um, that was the first. That was the first one I got from them. I'm waiting until all eighty-eight films release, and then I'll start. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, it took me a second to see what you mean. That you're just gonna slowly work through the eighty-eight films. What happens if they have an eighty-ninth film they want to release? I guess they're gonna have to change their name. Huh? They'll have to rename, or I refuse to buy. <laughs> yeah, just on principle. Um, then the other one I just want to quickly talk about is that so um, the we had this interview with with Phil from Fractured Visions, and um, I, I just want to call this out because I'm excited about it. You know, he produces all the special features for um, Second Sight and and a lot of them for 101. So he's he's really plugged into the Region B sort of production scene, kind of behind the scenes. Uh, and now with Fractured Visions, the thing that jumped out to me from that conversation is as he gets more money and, and just basically time to, to do it, he wants to start putting out box sets that rival the Anchor Bay box sets. And I'm so excited about that. He specifically called out the Sleepaway Camp one. Zach, did you ever have that or Adam? No. I know which one you're talking about, but um, I don't have it, sadly. No, it's cool. It's just like this medical kit. And uh, it's got all four Sleepaway Camp movies, or at least four of them. I don't know if it's all four, but um, yeah, like Anchor Bay was just, their special limited editions were notorious for being very much like on theme with the movie and being kind of outlandish. And he has a vision of wanting to bring that back. So I'm excited about that. Um, Arrow's doing it a little bit, um, but nobody's really fully dedicated. I think the way that he's talking about of just having this like crazy packaging that doesn't quite make sense. It's just fun to have. And uh, I hope he's able to do that. So, so go buy Fractured Visions. Uh, and then specifically 
free hand for a tough cop. I, I'm shocked if I'm going to like a Polizietechi film more than that. Like that movie is so fun. And Thomas Millian gives off really strong uh, Toshiro Mifune vibes in it of being that like kind of intense, but also funny and kind of crazy. Um, it's just a, yeah, hell of a fun film and a great release. And so his first three releases have been slam dunks. So I just want to give some, some love to that label. I'm not sure if Anchor Bay put this out. You might know. It's a little off topic. But um, they did a – I don't know if it was them, but there was a release for Texas Chainsaw Massacre where it looked like a meat, um, like meat you buy from the grocery store. <laughs> I don't think that would have been Anchor Bay. Um, but they didn't. It was a cool release. It was a DVD release, but I don't know. I can't remember who put it out. It could have honestly even been Shout Factory because they've been around that long. I can't look. But keep going. I'll, I'll see if I can find it. No, that's it for me. Uh, what about you, Zach? What, what have you been collecting? Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start my story with a tragedy. Um, so, Chris, I'm sure you remember you sent me a link to uh, Delamorte Delamore um, oh, a, a little while ago. And I had decided that I was finally going to buy it. I was finally at a price. I knew they were accepting a pretty decent um uh, offer and I'm not going to say what that number is because if I say it out loud it becomes true and then I'll have to reevaluate my life but let's just say it was fair in my mind at least so I had decided that I was going to get paid on Wednesday and so I was like well that's five days away it's been on here for like three months I should be fine I wake up Monday morning and it has sold and I'm still a little bitter about it because um, now the only other one on eBay is for $800, which is <laughs> dumb decisions as I've made. I've never made one that dumb. So I'm going to keep <laughs> true to that. Um, it was from 84 Entertainments, I believe was the company that put it out. It's a German company, I think. Um, really hard release. They only made like, they made less than a thousand of them. So they can, they are hard to find. So I'm just having to wait again. But in nicer news, because I had them, you know, I decided I was going to pick up some Arrow video stuff, get caught up on that. And they had put out some nice releases of three of Argento's films uh, for 4K, which was Bird of the Crystal Plumage, Deep Red, and Cat of Nine Tails. And yeah. the cover, they, they did two variations of it. They did their regular, and then they did a one with the original artwork on it. Yeah. Um, I went with that. I'm waiting for them to come in. Super excited about it. Um, I, I, I hope Arrow continues to do that with some of their like 4K releases because the whole reason I haven't gotten Robocop yet is because I already own a Robocop on Blu-ray and it's, you know, it's the same exact cover. So I'm not in a rush to upgrade it quite yet. Um, but if you put a variation cover on it, I will waste my money much quicker. So, <laughs> um, looking forward Fair to that. Hopefully that. those come in pretty soon. Fair warning on those, uh, for anybody that, it just assumes that they're going to release these 4K UHDs in a dual format packaging. That is not what Arrow's doing. <laughs> um, it's it's just the 4K disc, which is it sounds silly to say out loud, but I bought one of them just going under the assumption that they're still in the dual format format phase, and uh, they are for some of their releases. But just make sure you check first because they are not. It's not guaranteed to be in both formats. Yeah, I think pitch black was and i think battle royale was and donnie darko was but i don't know if that, those might be the only ones that were dual format and maybe flash gordon i think all their early ones may have been but 
Yeah, I've heard that yeah. they're not doing that for every release. Yeah. What about you, Adam? What have you What have you got here lately? Um, I picked up a few smaller things. I had sort of mentioned it to you guys at the start. You know, I picked up a couple of more Wuxia movies uh, from King Hu. Uh, but the one I want to talk about is a bit of an interesting film. Have you guys ever heard of a film from a dude called Abel Gantz called Napoleon? Like the 1927 movie or is this something different? Yeah, no, that's the exact one. So, uh, okay, this, yeah. This is a film that Stanley Cooper called a masterpiece of cinematic invention. Um, it's a silent film from, from 1927, as you said. It's a five and a half hour epic about Napoleon, obviously from the title. Um, but I, I was reading about this film when I was reading Mark Cousins' uh, The Story of Film. He has quite a bit of the film dedicated just to this. And it just, it just sounds like utterly incredible just in terms of how creative it was and how many how many cinematic techniques it essentially um it essentially invented um so i picked up there's a really nice release from uh, bfi uh three disc set um has a ton of special features documentaries about like the director and about this film and everything like that um i don't know if i'll watch a whole five and a half hours in one sitting um, you know what I'm like in terms of my longer films, but it is it is done in chapters, so I'll probably sort of get through it, maybe in like two or three sittings. Oh, um, yeah. But I'm super excited to see it because I'm just I just want to know if if uh, if it lives up to its to its hype. I'm actually I, I'm curious. I don't know if you have the issue pictures in front of you, Chris, but I'd be curious to see how high this is on the yeah. Yeah, give me a second. I, I can pull it up because I'll look it up by Gantz. Uh, here it is, 176. 176, yeah. So there we go. That, that kind of sums up how highly regarded the film is. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to watch that at some point. But like I said, I, I picked up another sort of small couple of couple of pieces. Um, I've gotten into a bad habit, and you guys probably do this too, of like ordering stuff like late at night. Yeah. And it's only the following day you think when you get like the the dispatch email mm-hmm. that you think mm, that wasn't a good decision. I've been <laughs> too, I've been doing that too much lately. Um, I I literally I did I did it not last night the night before. I ordered that um that that set that you're well not a set that sort of double feature that Eureka put out for two early John Ford Western silent westerns, um, yeah. Hell Bent and something else, and I'm like I'm. I, I got the shipping notification from Amazon this morning and I'm like, I don't even really like John Ford this much. Why did I buy this? Um, you know, it's, it's something about like late at night, $25 doesn't seem as much as it does in the morning. Yeah, for sure. That was it. It was, this was like 22 euro for like two films. I'm like, that's, that's a good deal. You know, it's limited edition. It's not going to be around forever. They'll put it out in some shitty non, they'll put it out in some shitty, you know, one without a slip cover in about six months. So a, I'll get the nice one now while I can. Um, so yeah, uh, there, there's two John Ford movies on the way that I'll probably never watch, but yeah, you know. No, you have them. No, no, at least I have them. At least I have them if I want them. I have them. You know, I <laughs> bet um, Bellatar yeah. looked at the BFI release of Napoleon and was like, I'm so glad they're putting short films out now. <laughs> so much more digestible. <laughs> Just, Which, uh, uh, just you might know, Adam, isn't that movie still considered like incomplete at this point? Like, 
The Napoleon one. Well, from what I was reading on the back, um, I don't think it's incomplete per se, but this was this was uh <laughs> I'm gonna put it into modern terms. This was the start of a cinematic universe that okay. Otto Gantz was going to create about the life of Napoleon. Um, so this is like the first of apparently six films that he was gonna make. Um, and he never completed any of the rest of them. I'm not sure what the exact reasoning was behind it. So I think this film is complete, but just not the entire vision that uh, Gantz wanted to put together. Okay, that may have been what I've heard, because I, I, for some reason I was thinking that it was going to be like a 10-hour movie, and they've just been able to find like pieces of it over the years to throw it together. <laughs> like, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, and just actually before we move on to the next section because we mentioned they shoot pictures and um, did you guys see that the 2022 edition is out now so you, oh, might I did up, not. you might need to update your spreadsheets um the 2022 spreadsheet is out yeah he guy has the the guy that puts it together has like some kind of medical condition which he's not getting into um but i don't think the website is updated right but he's put the um uh excel sheet there for people yeah exactly yeah, so I downloaded it there the other day just to have a quick look. I looked through like the top 20 or so to see if any of the big ones had moved. I think two of them like just swapped, but I don't think there was like any major movement. Vertigo is still at number two, unfortunately. It will get number one eventually, I'm sure. Uh, I was shocked it didn't drop a few points. Considering it's not that <laughs> um, is, where was Tremors in the top 20? It was unfortunately overlooked. Trash oh, list. Really? Trash list. Yeah, seriously, throw it out. Yeah. All right, and welcome back. Now we are going to be doing um, my pick for um, this time, where we are still doing the whole, you know, uh, once a week, one of us will pick. Next week, it's going to be Adam, right? You're next. Yeah, I am indeed, yeah. Cool, so we might get to hear what our pick is for next episode. But for this one, we're going to be talking about the 2015 film Bone Tomahawk. In the dying days of the Old West, an elderly sheriff and his posse set out to rescue their town's doctor from a cannibalistic cave dwellers known as troglodytes. Um, I'll give a little uh, background on Zoller since I know I'm probably the most knowledgeable one here. Um, I, I, I got into Zoller through his book, um, Race of a Broken Land, which that came out in, I think, the early 2000s. Um, really graphic book, really great Western. I know he also wrote uh, Congressional Jackals, which won awards with Western. Um, I think they do something called the Spur Awards. He's won things for that for his writing. Um, and he moved to film in 2015, uh, pretty late in his life because he was in his 40s, I believe, when he made this. So a little bit longer than most people decide to get into film. Um, but this has a lot of elements from his two Western novels. Um, he takes a lot from grindhouse type cinema and we'll definitely I'm sure get into that later, but I would love to hear what, uh, Chris, what did you think about it? Yeah, definitely. So real quick, the world, uh, ranks this as 7,160, which is not bad for a movie made only six years ago. Um, uh, meaning, you know, meaning it's already popping up on some lists. Um, <clears throat> it's right next to Friday Night Lights, which is another beloved kind of movie. And then Kubo and the Two Strings, <laughs> Syriana, 
so this it starts to get pretty diverse at this point in the list um but yeah so i think there's a lot of people that are would say they're you know this is enough fans that it's it's getting some love and it's probably going to continue moving up um i don't know if, if we're going to edit this out or include it in the in the podcast or not but we were just kind of talking about a little bit of the controversy i was just more from the sense i was trying to understand it and so i guess that that controversy notwithstanding on, on zoller um which sounds like it's more open-ended than anything uh I, I think this is a very well-made movie like i was drawn into the characters i i felt like i described it as a little bit like um almost like a coen brothers kind of feel in the sense that there's comedy thrown in i think in places where you wouldn't expect there to be comedy i think uh russell and then uh, richard jenkins both have a good like physicality to their characters which makes them kind of not funny in the sense of like you know slap your knee kind of funny but more just there's like a whimsy or like there's that other side there in the in the film that also adds another layer of like entertainment um and the scenes with the troglodytes are pretty graphic and intense so it satisfies the the horror itch uh i i, I don't know i think this is i really liked it um yeah i'll, I'll leave it there there's a, there's a lot to talk about but uh i really liked it what about you adam um, yeah, like I thought it was fine for the most part. I, I, I did particularly prefer the last sort of 30 minutes or so of the film. Um, like I I think a lot of it, it's very painfully obvious as someone's first movie with a lot of the aspects with the direction. Pretty much any scene where like people are sitting and talking to one another, it's really, it's really stilted in terms of how it's directed. I you know we're talking about, you know, a film that has, you know, a decent pedigree of actors in here, you know, I'll take like one, one scene, for example, near the very start is a scene where Patrick Wilson's talking to his wife and the whole, I was just kind of cringing through the whole scene of it came across very amateurish, how it was filmed and how it was directed, but it got better as, as the film got on, it was almost like, like, I wouldn't be surprised if this film was shot chronologically, like shot by shot. Cause I felt like as the film got better, the filmmaking got stronger um, and then the last 30 minutes are just are just nightmarish um, really really sort of well put together in terms of creating atmosphere and creating tension and then just straight up showcasing brutality um, so yeah like I wasn't really on board for most of it I thought it was a pretty amateurish effort for a lot um, and that's nothing against you know Zoller you know this was his first film you know it's, it's and it wasn't as you know this is not his medium he was trained in you know as Zach mentioned he was, a, he was an author first so the story is going to be much more important to this to, to him you know compared to the direction and I you know the story is a good story it's it's compelling you know it has it's maybe maybe a bit basic but it's compelling um yeah that last 30 minutes was 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 pretty was was very impressive I'm actually interested that you brought up the uh, Patrick Wilson and his uh, scene with his wife because I, you know, every I've watched this several times now, and I I do agree with you. I think the film gets stronger as it goes because one thing that kind of sticks out of me when I rewatch it is the dialogue is very play, like you would see it on a stage. It's very yes, that's exactly how that is exactly how I, I felt like I was watching a a, a play. Yeah, 
And, and I think, um, I, I think that is like almost like finding, I agree. I think it's like finding your footing, like how you want to do this. And especially since there's very few inside shots of this film. So it's almost like trying to figure out how you film indoors when you're used to filming out in the vast, you know, desert wilderness. Um, which I guess, who knows, maybe that's why he decided to do his next film primarily only indoors and in prisons. But, um, you know, it's an interesting idea because I definitely agree that it, I, I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if it's film chronologically either. Well, I'm, glad, I'm glad you felt that way. I didn't want to be shitting on a, a film that you like, but... Um, yeah, no, I completely agree. It did. It felt like a play a lot of the time. And, you know, that got, that did definitely get better. The dialogue got better. Um, you know, the scenes where all the guys are sort of out in, in the wilderness having their sort of, you know, they're all sort of having goes at each other, a little tit for tat here and there. And, you know, that that was well done, um, uh, especially with Matthew Fox's character, who I enjoyed. Um, I know you're you're a Matthew Fox fan, being a big Lost fan, so I'm sure you enjoyed seeing him in this as well. Um, but yeah, it, the film definitely gets better as it goes on, and it's a great point that you made about the indoor shots. That I could definitely see that being the case as well, where he just wasn't sure how to position a camera indoors versus outdoors, where you can kind of put it anywhere. Yeah, and I actually was really impressed by Matthew Fox. You know, this was the final movie he's done as of now. I think he's scheduled to go back to television. So he's been out of he's been out of film for a while now. But um, mm -hmm. this is an interesting character for him anyway because he's, in a lot of things, he plays a very hero-esque character. It's what he was known for in Lost. He played in Party of Five. Um, so to kind of see him play this character that's very openly racist, um, even you know, even when he's challenged to that to extents, um, you know, and you, they do delve into that a little bit, um, whether or not you view it as they're trying to justify it or if it's just characterization, you know, that's definitely a discussion to have. Um, but I think he's very compelling and I think it was nice to see him kind of out of his type and play that sort of character. Yeah, that's a great that's a great segue to something I wanted to ask you all about. I felt like it was I the only, I don't know. I'm curious if I'm the only one that felt like this, but I feel like almost every actor in the film was against type. Um, like like Kurt Russell was slightly more kind of goofy than he usually. Well, I mean, I don't know. I guess that's not true. He's he has a, maybe maybe Kurt Russell is the one exception, but like I would never expect Richard Jenkins in a role like this. Um, I would never, ever expect Fred Malamed in a role like this. Um, I, I, yeah, like I just, it, it, I thought it was an interest, like his casting was so uh, counterintu counterintuitive for me. I felt like it was intentional uh, or, or am I the only one? <laughs> and I, I could definitely see that because, you know, David Arquette is kind of playing kind of a different character for him, even though he has a very small part in the film. Yes, David Arquette, another one, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's almost like it's given a chance where, you know, the, you, Adam's kind of touched on it, the camera is kind of static in a lot of areas. It's almost like relying on the actor to kind of put their foot forward in a sense and bring these characters to life and maybe challenging them that way was a good way to do that. Yeah. And even Richard Jenkins as well, you know, he normally plays sort of the, 
the straight shooter, more authoritative kind of character. Mm-hmm. Whereas he, like, I didn't even really recognize him. Like I was, I was kind of waiting for Richard Jenkins to show up for a little while until I realized, because um, yeah. he, he looks very unrecognizable. And, you know, you don't normally, you don't normally tend to see him in, as a kind of like a, as a bumbling kind of character. So yeah, I agree. There is a lot of sort of going against type. I think the only people who don't go against type really, like I said, is Kurt Russell, who for the most part is, you know, he's, you know, he's just a sheriffy kind of character. And I suppose Patrick Wilson, you know, this sort of kind of, you know, he's, he's your sort of, he's the kind of good guy of the film. Patrick Wilson tends to play that kind of character anyway. So I don't think it's too different for him, but yeah, I can, I can definitely see that as being a, a team towards some of the casting. Who, sorry to say this, but Patrick Wilson has the most generic, like white guy face. Who, what, what's he famous for? Uh, Insidious uh, and the Conjuring. Insidious and the Conjuring, yeah. Oh, so he's like a horror guy. Yeah, he's that's primarily what he's done. Of course, he did some superhero stuff. He was uh, in, he was in Watchmen, um, and he had been in Aquaman. So he does stuff like that as well. But mostly, he's directing the new Insidious movie that's coming out as well. Uh, so. He is very okay. generic white guy, though. I get why you, I get why you're asking that question. Yeah, I mean handsome, story. handsome fellow. But um, okay, yeah. And then I, the only other thing, just on the casting, is I thought it was cool. I always like seeing Sid Haig in a in a horror movie. That was a nice touch. Um, although he had a minor role. And then did y'all see that Sean Young played? In the I movie? literally just saw this. I was looking at the cast list, and I'm like, wait, where the fuck was Sean Young in this movie? I don't even recognize her character's name. Um, yeah, she that was, was one ra- of the, so random. Yeah, she's one of the older women in the in the town. Yeah, yeah it's I, very I character actor focused, I would say. I think that's for sure. The, the cast is very much like these are typical, not typical, but these are very much people who focus on being character actors. Yeah, like even Zan McLaren is is a big nod to that as well, even though he's only in like one scene. He's like your generic native american actor if you need a native american actor you hire zan mclaren and he's great in dr sleep by the way Playing he has a major american, role in no that doubt. oh cool yeah. oh he plays the guy that comes into town and basically like kind of tells them what's going to happen uh what, like, yeah he's the, like the the educated native american character yeah. uh, so Maybe, I don't know if that's a good segue or if this is even something y'all want to talk about, but, uh, you know, that this film can get kind of racist at times. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it's always this tricky thing in filmmaking, right? Because as you're making a film that, that's set in a very racist time, like, do you choose to kind of be true to the time or do you choose to make a film that's more palatable for uh, an audience that is has moved on which i think by the way is a good thing that we moved on i'm not saying it's better back then (laughs) but just in terms of fidelity to like how the characters would have spoken and 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 their views how they would have been at that time i think that's always a really interesting kind of balance to think about when you're writing a movie set back in in the west right yeah Yeah, and and there's oh sorry adam no you go ahead no i was just uh gonna know you know one thing that i i noticed when i watched this because there that is a great question and i think it's something that it's it's a big reason that there is a lot of controversy with zoller and whether or not it's 
true to his character or not, I can't say, and I'm not going to speculate too hard on it. Um, but then, the, you know, for every, it, it almost seems like he purposely balances it to an extent of character says something racist. And then a couple scenes later, there'll be something that kind of goes against that. Like, I think one I remember pretty well is when uh, later in the film, when Matthew Fox has his horse stolen and, you know, he makes a racial comment towards Mexicans and um, Richard Jenkins character, Chicory is like, did you train her in bigotry? And I was like, it's funny. It's a funny line, but it's also calling out that mentality as well. So it's kind of this weird balance. And I think that can also make people uncomfortable because they don't know which direction they're intended because both characters are the protagonist. And they're having very different views on that sort of idea. Uh, The the point I was going to make, just for what you said, Chris, about, you know, like you said, it's hard to make a film set in a racist time when, you know, you're going to have to come up with an answer as to whether or not you're going to, you know, buy into the, or not buy in, but if you're going to showcase the, the mindset of that era, I think there's a very definitive line that you can take. Like, I see no problem in showing racist characters being normal people because that's the way it was back then. It was normal to be racist. But where the line is for me is when, you know, you can have characters who are racist, Matthew Fox's character, because they would have been racist back in those times but I can't really see a way of defending, you know, creative decisions that are born out of racism, such as making the, the villains of this film, you know, the sort of generic sort of backwoods, crazy cannibal Native Americans that, you know, maybe existed, but it's more of a caricature of what people would have thought Native Americans were like at that time. And that's a creative decision from Zoller. That's not anything based on historical fact, really, for the most part. He's decided to make the villains characters. And that's where the line is for me with this kind of thing. It, it's very much in John Ford territory of, of racism. I guess that's, you could, Wes Craven has a similar critique then in The Hills Have Eyes, right? Uh, uh, yeah, the- that's what I was thinking as well. Um... We yeah. talk about like backwoods characters um, in the deep south, like with Deliverance and Wrong Turn and Hills Have Eyes. Yeah. But, so that, that's where it is for me. You know, I have no problem with, you know, an old West film having racist characters because, you know, people were racist back then. You know, it's, it's natural to have those kind of characters. What I'm not a big fan of is, you know, basing your villain are basing characters off caricatures rather than fact. Yeah, okay. No, I mean, I, I appreciate the discussion. I, I, I don't know where I, I, I sit on it because I, I think you, you make a good point. Like why, why make the villain this way if there's not necessarily, uh, if even the characterization of, of the troglodytes in that way is inherently racist. Like, do you have to go there, right? You don't. You don't have to go there, right? Basically, right. You could choose to make a different villain or, or tell in a different way. Um, is that that's basically what you're saying, right? Yeah, basically, he you yeah. know, he he made the active decision to make you know his villains a bunch of 
you know, stereotypical Native American cannibal, you know, savages, basically. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. That That's a good point. I mean, I guess the, the counterpoint to that, not that I'm trying to defend it, but you could say that this is probably a good example of what a nightmare would have been back then. Maybe that's like how the stories would have been told back then. But then it goes back to the question of, well, do you have to tell the story in 2022 <laughs> or 2015 in this case? You know, probably not. <laughs> yeah. And look, I, I'm not going to, I don't want to make this a big woke parade or anything like that. You know, I've, I, I don't really have a large problem with the film in itself, you know, having this kind of characterization. I was just more so talking about the point that you had made of, you know, you know, the, you know, the difficulty of making this kind of film and this kind of era. And that's, that's for me, the way you can kind of do it tastefully is by including the historically accurate racism and removing the historically inaccurate racism. <laughs> that's, a, that's a fair line. The, one other thing I was curious about, maybe y'all can help me. You can, we spoke about maybe some of the writing was a bit amateurish. One of the characters that I never quite understood was Matthew Fox. I was wondering if y'all could help me straighten this out. Because, I mean, I guess we've never really done the, the, the story, but essentially this is the story about how there's these troglodytes uh, kidnap some people in the town, right? And there's just a group of, of characters from the town that go out and try to find their camp and try to rescue this group that was kidnapped, right? That's kind of the basic premise of the story, right? Yeah, yeah. And I never could figure out where Matthew Fox's loyalty came from because he seems like a conflicted character, but I... I, I didn't know if he was underwritten or if I just missed something, but I couldn't quite figure out why he was so dedicated to this cause that he seemed to be so like uh, caustic towards. Oh, the way I've always kind of seen his character is obviously he did have interest in Patrick Wilson's wife, uh, the local uh, doctor, doctor assistant. And some of that could come from that. You know, he fails some obligation to that. I also think he's kind of this, we, we talk about character, you know, he wears all white. It's a, it's a very big thing. Almost like when you talk about Westerns, you talk about white hat versus dark hat, you know, good and bad. And it's interesting to have him in that, in that kind of role because he's kind of the most hostile one, but the obligation just comes from how he views himself. You know, someone who wears something like that, they see themselves as, this arbiter of good, they need to do the right thing. And he feels like he has the greatest ability to help, which comes a lot from his ego. You know, he believes he's the best shot. He believes he's their best opportunity to actually save these people and not lose the town sheriff, the only other deputy. And, um, you know, uh, you know, the doctor, the only person who knows medicine, I think he feels some sort of obligation in that sense. Okay. Yeah, no, that's satisfying to me. I, that, for, I, I, I'll go with that. For me, it was, I just thought he had wanted to have a nice excuse to go shoot some Indians. And you know, yeah, honestly, that's probably part of it as well, at least, you know, from reality versus his own perception. Yeah. Oh, that's a nice way to phrase it. So you're saying how he views himself versus how we see his character, like more of like who his character really is. Yeah. And I mean, you know, he does good things, you know, it, he, he does, you know, but almost in an accident, like um, I'm trying not to do anything too spoilers to the end, but like we find out that the 
people who come into their camp were actually, you know, there to cause them harm. He probably shoots them because they're Mexican. That that, but it's in, but in, in almost an accidental way, he either made the situation worse or better, depending on how you view it, because then they had two less people to later rob them. Right. Yeah. But it's um, it, it's an he's he kind of becomes an interesting character just because we know so little about him, and he doesn't really talk about himself much until the last night that they're walking. Yeah, exactly. So, do we want to talk about the the ending? Yeah, I'm or always going to talk else about the ending. Is there anything else people want to bring up before we get that far? No, I think let's do it. I think the movie is fairly straightforward. Let's let's get into it. Okay. Once again, there'll be timestamps. Uh, this ending's fucking nuts. Um, <laughs> I was honestly like, this was the most scared I was watching a movie in a long time with, with the ending of this film. It was, you know, I, I kind of shot a bit on Zoller, you know, calling his work a bit amateurish, you know, at the start, but he really knew how to ramp up the tension uh, in that last sort of 30 minutes. And, you know, his, his, uh, his choice to not, you know, not look away from the violence. Um, some would probably call it controversial. I know there's a, there's a very infamous scene in this film that I, I was aware of, but I had no context for. Uh, there's a very infamous scene in towards the end of this film um, that a lot of filmmakers would be kind of afraid to not pull away. Uh, and he didn't pull away. <laughs> we saw it in all of its uh, glory. I feel weird about saying, but in all of its glory. <laughs> um, so yeah, like I said, I, I was terrified watching the end of this film. Did you guys, were you guys similar? Were you guys thinking it was more awesome? What, what, what was your feelings watching it? Because I could it's... see it going either way. It's going to sound weird to say this, but it's almost a sense of, I'm going to sound terrible saying this, catharsis in the sense okay. that, you know, you spend I don't know, nearly an hour and 45 minutes, you know, with this very slow burn, very, we're walking towards, you know, we're walking towards the belly of the beast sort of idea. You know, they, they've been told what they're in for, but they don't really understand it. And, you know, that, that's a risky thing to do anyway, because if you oversell it to your audience, you have the greatest opportunity to disappoint them yeah. because you can't live up to what they built up in their head. And I think what makes that scene so successful is he absolutely did. Um, he built up, ex- you know, worse than what I think most people imagined it would be. You know, I don't think he imagined, you know, I don't think we imagined there would be these people with this jewelry cut into their throat and there'd be these you know somebody cut down the middle um, and scalped and um all that good stuff with the literal bone tomahawk so i think it's uh i think it's a cathartic in that way that it actually does the rarity of exceeding what you build up in your own head which is interesting because yeah. it kind of it's it goes against i can't remember what filmmaker said it maybe it was spielberg about jaws or something but uh, there's a, a, a filmmaker who has a sort of famous line and I'm, I'm paraphrasing but basically like the audience what the audience can imagine is so much worse than what a director can ever show you and this film kind of says fuck you to that phrase and says I'm going to show you the worst thing you could possibly think of 
Yeah. You know, it's, I'm just thinking of, have you ever heard that, that debate with, if you're going to make a movie about a band, the worst thing you could ever do, and, and they're supposed to be great. They're supposed to be like the best band in the world. The worst thing you could do is play a song, like an original song, because that song will never be like the best song ever, <laughs> you know? Right? Yeah. Um, it kind of reminds me of that discussion of like, you know, in a, in a horror movie, how far, how much, if you're setting it up to be the most terrifying thing ever, how much do you show? Um, I think Zal is probably pretty sick dude. <laughs> he can dream up some pretty nasty stuff. And I think it works for the movie. Like, I think in this case, he created a hit song. If we're going to use that analogy, that feels much more harmless than it actually is. He, he, he built it up to something terrifying and it was terrifying. The, the actual weapon itself was terrifying. Like I didn't quite understood the mechanics of how the weapon was as sharp as it was, but it, it just felt like it, it sliced through everything like butter. Like it was a very terrifying weapon. Oh, Jesus. And the sound design is really what sells this last 30 minutes. Like, yes, the sound design from everything, like the way, you know, things, the squishy sounds of, you know, the, the tomahawk against the person, um, the burning of when they put the flask and the Kurt Russell of the cut. <sighs> um, all that is like really thought through. And it obviously that was probably took up a ton of time to get that right. And like even the gunshots that are like within that cave echo a lot. And that's something that's forgot, forgotten a lot when you do sound design is actually making semi-realistic gun sounds and how loud and how much they just kind of echo through yeah you're right yeah you guys can't see me for once because we all have our videos off but i am like wincing the whole way through (laughs) us talking about everything that happens in this film as you know you guys know and i'm like you know i'm not i'm not big into hyper violence in movies i'm much you know i prefer how violence is done in halloween than it's done in like hostile or any of those kind of torture porny movies um, I'm not a I'm not a big digger of of super violence, um, so you can imagine what I was like when I was watching this movie. Um, it was well the last thirty minutes of this movie, I should say. I don't think I'll ever forget the bisection scene. It's just horrifying. Oh yeah, it's it is. I just had chills when you said it. like it. Yeah, it. I mean he makes it so real that you kind of for a second forget everything else that's happening in the movie and you just want to escape. Yeah. Right. Which is, is the, the, I think the mark of a good horror director. For sure. Like kudos to Zoller. I don't get, I don't get scared watching horror movies. I'm sure you guys are the same. We're all seasoned horror movie watchers. I don't get scared watching horror movies. I was scared watching the last 30 minutes of this movie. So big props to Zoller for that. Yeah, and it's it, it's kind of interesting. He um, this is really the only horror movie he's done. Some people will count Brawl, and it's kind of a borderline one. But I'd be interested to see him kind of go back to, you know, not the questionable if it's horror or not ones, but something like that because he obviously has a lot of thought into it. Um, his books play in that field all the time. He recently wrote a horror comic. Um, so I mean, it's. Obviously, something of very much interest in hyperviolence is a big part of all of his movies, but especially here. Cool. Any any final thoughts on Bone Tomahawk? I don't think so. No, I think I'm good. Cool. 
Well, it was an interesting pick, Zach. I'm, I hope I hope you're happy with mine and Chris's reaction to it. Oh no, I mean that that's what I wanted. I knew there was kind of a lot to dig into, even though the movie was simple. So I'm I'm happy with how it turned out. I would have been disappointed if you guys just straight up hated it and said it was the worst pick we had done. I would have <laughs> no, yeah, I don't know how y'all feel, but like I, I feel like across any genre now, at the minimum, I can at least appreciate like elements of a film enough to sit through it and kind of like be able to call them out. Like the the more movies you watch, I feel like there's more. I have a lot more patience with just. What, like what the director is trying to do or like what's happening on screen or like you know like these different things that kind of like even whether or not you like the movie it's sort of like okay i can see what this this is cool what they're doing here um that's yeah like that's something i've been practicing over the last few years like since i got into film like yeah. even if i'm not actively enjoying the film i'll always try and find out and see if i can at least appreciate the craft and that's the only time i ever really don't like a film as if as if i can't even find merit in the filmmaking itself um like i've watched plenty of films in the last kind of couple of years that i've rated like four stars but i'll probably never watch them again because i didn't find myself actively enjoying it but i had great respect for the filmmaking itself if that makes sense um so don't ever like, watch don't ever watch the hg lewis films <laughs> yeah i don't think I'll, i don't think i'd like them to be honest. from what i've heard i don't think they're my they're my cup of tea it's actually funny you kind of brought that up, Chris, because uh, I'm going through all the uh, Texas Chainsaw movies completely out of order. I actually watched uh, Texas Chainsaw 3D, which is notoriously called one of the worst ones in the series because of, I don't know if either of you guys have seen it, but it has like the great lines of someone telling uh, Leatherface to welcome to Texas, motherfucker, which is horrible. And uh, another one where somebody says, do your thing, cuz, to Leatherface. Um, <laughs> it's got some pretty cringe lines. But I did see when I was kind of going through my letterbox that a lot of people I follow who are, you know, big into the series, they're big into horror, they rated it pretty highly. And I was like, okay, I haven't seen this in, you know, since I saw it in theater, so maybe I should give it another go. I didn't hate it the second time through. I didn't like it, but I could at least say, you know what, that is not by far the worst thing I've ever seen. <laughs> There's some <laughs> cool elements just about to it that. I can at least enjoy <laughs> Yeah, sometimes it's just about it not being complete shit compared to it being good. Sometimes you just got to find that silver lining. Okay, and now we're coming into the uh, the last part of our podcast, which is always is any other business. Uh, just a part where we just want to talk about something that we've seen recently that we've enjoyed and we just want to give a shout out to. Uh, I'm just going to jump in really quick with mine because um, I'm just going to do just two really, really quick films that... Pretty much everyone has seen. It's one of those ones, again, like we did a few weeks ago, where these are films that everyone has seen that I'd never seen, and I'd watched them, and I thought they were great. Um, the first one, which I didn't expect to love as much as I did, was uh, La La Land, um, you know, with uh, the Damien Chazelle, with Ryan Gosling and, and Emma Stone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I watched it on Valentine's Day, because um, we were just trying to find movies to watch that weren't too cringy. And Neve had seen it before and she didn't really like it the first time and she wanted to see it again. And I'd never seen it. Um, so I said, oh, fine, look, we'll stick it on and we'll see what we think. I thought it was brilliant. It was so well made, so well put together. Obviously, I'm not a big musical guy at all, but, you know, the film is just really, really well crafted. Um, it's gorgeous to look at. 
you know, the, the music numbers are okay. I'm not really too big of a fan of that, but um, yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was a really, really well-made film. Um, so La La Land, that was good. And then the other film, which you actually mentioned earlier, Zach, and I didn't get a chance to pick up because we kind of moved past it, but I watched Robocop um, the other night on Friday night. I watched Robocop for the first time ever. Never seen Robocop before. Um, oh, wow. That film, that film's fucking awesome. It's so good. Um, I, I, funnily enough, I've watched, I, cause I keep forgetting that Criterion put it out and I was trying to find for the Criterion challenge. I was trying to find a Criterion from the eighties that I, that I wanted to watch. And I've gotten this into this thing where um, I got an exercise bike a few weeks ago and I've gotten really into it. But like, if I don't, if I'm not doing anything while on the exercise bike, I get really bored really quickly. So I've found that like watching movies while I'm on the exercise bike actually really helps the experience, but only if I'm watching like exciting movies or like, you know, nothing slow pace. So I've started like watching like action movies or um, even like I've been watching like true to Star Wars movies again. And I, I watched RoboCop while on the exercise bike and I was just so fucking pumped while watching it. I went like the whole way through the film on the exercise bike. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's so good though. Um, it counted as it is my criterion challenge for the 1980s. So I was happy to knock that off for that week as well. So it killed two birds at one stone. It, it got me through my cycle while also counting towards uh, the criterion challenge. So two very different films, La La Land and RoboCop. I'm sure everyone has seen them or at least has heard of them. Um, and yeah, two, I, I very much enjoyed both of them. RoboCop is awesome. I, I watched it again earlier this year. It's, it's just a lot of fun. It's so fun. It's so fun. It, it's kind of crazy how when they talk about AI in that movie, um, how accurate they are. Like, I don't know what kind of research they did, but, you know, in my, I, I, I've been selling AI for the last, let's call it five years. Um, and I think it's an underappreciated part of that movie. But they, the way they describe artificial intelligence, it's not some like cheap Hollywood guess like you know what AI is going to do it's pretty spot on actually it's kind of unnerving almost so I'm going to talk about um you know since I, I if you, for, I'm sure for the Patreon you know I've already brought up Texas Chainsaw Massacre but for you that are not on Patreon um who didn't get that little tidbit I've been going through the whole series because the newest one came out the 2022 film that um had every right to be a complete and utter disaster um I'll quickly go through this uh, essentially, the first director was fired. They were filming a Texas Chainsaw movie in Bulgaria. Um, the test screens were awful, and then it got sold to Netflix. So just about everything said this movie is completely terrible. And, you know, from a series that doesn't have the strongest consistency, it was kind of like, meh, that's to be expected. Um, surprisingly, I liked it, kind of. Um, it's definitely has issues, a lot of them. Um, but it's been very divisive and I think that's just kind of going to be a thing going forward with a lot of these slasher movies that are coming out that they're not going to, there's not going to be any consistency in how people find them. I was just actually just going through my letterbox and just to kind of give an example of the people I follow who have seen it, um, four, one and a half, one, four, two, three and a half, two, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's so over the board of what it is and i'll, I'll kind of quickly go over it. it's it's interesting because the film is weirdly touching on topics they you know living in the rural south that you'll get a lot of um 
how the rebel flag is used, uh, gentrification, um, gun violence. And I'm, I've been, you know, that was one of the things the test audiences really didn't like is, you know, it was kind of a, had a what's that stupid saying that people like say, go, uh, go woke, go broke. Um, what was kind of interesting watching it is the film doesn't necessarily take a stance on any of these things. And some may complain it's just window dressing. Um, I mean, you're not going to win when you're talking about something political anyway, no matter if you pick a side or you don't pick a side. But I, I did at least appreciate that they were kind of touching on these ideas and, you know, something that, you know, these type of ideas that hit very close to home. Um, the characters are completely unlikable. Most of them are. Um, they're very Gen Z, very much TikTok influencer types who essentially buy a town just to kind of bring coffee shops and stuff to this old southern town um and to you know save the suspense leatherface kills a bunch of them uh, <laughs> very violent gore's great fady alvarez who did the evil dead remake the adult three movies he's the one who can't you know he was a big producer and you can kind of see his influence there with how gory everything is if you go into this just kind of wanting a gory film gory slasher film that has leatherface in it and you're not sitting there saying, well, it doesn't live up to one of the most classic horror films ever made. It's a pretty fun time. I, I'd, I'd put it behind the first two and the remake, but better than the rest, at least. I'm sorry, did you say this is on Netflix? Yes, yes, it released oh. on Netflix. Well, I'm going to watch that during the week then. Thank you. I, I, was, <laughs> I, was, I was actually wanting to see it after you, had, after you had mentioned that it came out. I was kind of morbidly curious to watch it. Um, but I was like, ah, oh, when am I going to get a chance to go to the, the cinema? I didn't even look up to see cinema times or anything. I just don't really get a chance to go a lot because of, you know, where I live and I don't drive. So bus times and it's just a nightmare for me to go to the cinema. I basically have to book a day off work. And so it's not really worth it just to go see a Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. But now that I know it's on Netflix, then I will happily watch it during the week. And uh, movies- you've seen the first one and that's the only one you have to see. It's a direct sequel to the first. That's all I've seen is the first one. So that's fine. It's a it's a movie to uh, ride an exercise bike to. <laughs> it's not that's a bad one. And Adam, that's what I'm thinking. Seventy-one yeah. minutes besides credits. I saw that in your review, and I when I read your review for it, I was like, "Hot damn, this is my kind of movie." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm definitely sure. that, that is definitely going to be one of my cycle movies during the week, one hundred percent. That's what I was thinking. It's amazing. You know, it's interesting. You talked about the divisiveness of a lot of these remakes. I almost wish they wouldn't do straight remakes. I mean. I understand why from a commercial standpoint, but like if, you know, Marcus Nespel comes to mind, he did two remakes, right? Mm-hmm. Texas Chainsaw Massacre and then also um, Jason, right? Yep. And I haven't seen the, mass- the, the Texas Chainsaw one, but like the Jason one was awesome. Like, yeah, the, I, the, the, his Friday the 13th is very greatest hits of the first four. Yeah. But it was like a great horror movie. Like Jason mm-hmm. was terrifying in that. And I feel like maybe people are, you know, it was a different take on the character. So I think maybe that's one reason why people wouldn't like it or, or whatever. But if you just think about it as like a, a new horror movie, I don't know how you don't like that movie. And like, but I think there's just, you, you, you tie into these like old franchises with lifelong fans and like they can't get over sort of the expectation or the experience they had with the first one, you know, which I mean, well, see, I, I get this is, this is, and this is why you need to see the new Scream movie. What they're doing now is not sequels. They're requels. They're half reboot, half prequel, or not prequel, half reboot, half sequel. 
So, you know, this is what Halloween, what Scream itself, and it kind of pokes fun at itself. What it seems like Texas Chainsaw Massacre has done with this by bringing back. This is the second time Texas Chainsaw's done this, actually. Oh, by bringing back like original characters. Yeah, like, Texas like original Chainsaw actors. 3D is a direct sequel to the first film. But did they bring back original actors from the first? Um, Gunnar Hansen's in it. He doesn't play Leatherface. Uh, Bill Mosley's in it. He doesn't play Chop Top. Yeah, so this uh, is what I'm talking back about. Characters though. who were in it, yeah. Yeah, so this is what I'm talking about, though. So that there's a distinction there between you know that kind of being in, in rebooty territory because it's different people. Whereas with this one, from what I'm aware, the original Final Girl is back playing the same character in this Texas Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie. Obviously, the Halloween movies have been doing it, which bringing back Jamie Lee. The Scream new Scream movie does about bringing back you know Nev Campbell and, and David Arquette yeah. and such. So this, but they 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 mix them with new characters. It's new characters that have nostalgic touchings upon the original film, um, by and they all they all name themselves after the original film. They don't call themselves, you know, they're not highlighting the fact that they're sequels. You know, they're called Halloween, even though it's twenty eighteen, or Scream, even though it's twenty twenty two, or it's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, even though it's twenty twenty two. It's um, it's it's this this requel thing. If you have you should watch the new scream movie chris when it comes out i think it's going to be out on streaming at the end of the month um so you'll be able to watch it at home it does touch a lot on what you're talking about with with sequels and stuff and, and what modern films are doing with sequels cool yeah i think it's a fascinating trend i mean it, maybe a lot of these are going to be you know appreciated more in in retrospect kind of things like in 15 years people are going to look back and appreciate these but maybe well, it's too much to take it's what I'm calling nostalgia porn at the moment. It's nice. Star, Star Wars started it. Star Wars Force Awakens started it when they brought back Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher and Mark Hamill. Mm-hmm. Ever since then, franchises have just been getting on the nostalgia train. Like even like non-horror films have been doing it. You know, the new Jurassic Park movie is bringing back original, you know, it's bringing back, you know, Jeff Goldblum and Laura Dern. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the, obviously the most recent Spider-Man movie with, uh, you know, with the where they, where they brought back uh, Tobey Maguire and and Andrew Garfield. Um, I know I'm missing one. Oh, the new Ghostbusters movie. You know, bringing back the the original cast as well. So it's what I'm calling nostalgia porn, where these big franchises are are starting new stories with new characters, but the legacy characters are kind of there in the periphery as well. And it, it's kind of interesting to do this because it you know while it's definitely like hey Star Wars did it huge influence there for obvious reasons but it's almost also like the, the, what chris was talking about these remakes it's almost like well people always say remakes are worse so why don't we just not do a remake but kind of cheat it a little bit yeah and it, it's it's i think it's i from personal experience i'm liking that better than straight remakes i think they do at least you know if they're going to be fan service about it at least you're honest about it sort of idea <laughs> um but oh yeah, yeah for sure it'll be like, interesting there's no dis- to see how it does yeah people that are under no illusions of this is you know this is a trend at the moment so like you said it'd be interesting to see where it goes um you know we're probably going to see it in the new doctor strange movie from what i've been yeah, reading sure. you know um, there's going to be a lot of legacy people well the, the trailer even showed well they didn't they showed the back of patrick stewart's head you know i think that's as fan servicey as you're going to get by bringing back you know patrick stewart um 
you know, as Professor X to a completely like to the new Marvel universe. So, you know, when you see something like that, but yeah, we could probably talk about this for hours. Chris, what have you seen that you liked? Let's 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 wrap things up. <laughs> um, okay, so I there there's two that are very different tonally and very different movies, but I just love them both. So I want to bring attention to them. One of them I kind of talked about a little bit, but there's an Italian movie called uh, Freehand for a Tough Cop. It's also called just Tough Cop, and the direct translation is basically like the 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 criminal and the cop um it's more more literal but it's a, a movie made by umberto lenzi uh 1976 and fractured visions has put it out on a region free release so it's easy to find um but the movie is awesome it's like a imagine it's basically like a buddy cop movie but the way that they get paired together is that the cop uh, goes into a prison where uh, Thomas Millian is a prisoner and he is hiding around a corner and he knocks him unconscious. He knocks the prisoner unconscious, throws him over his shoulder, puts him in the police car and then basically convinces him as they're going that they need to become partners together. <laughs> so it's a, uh, an atypical uh, introduction to a buddy cop movie. Um, and Thomas Millian is, uh, you know, he's, I don't know how much y'all know him. He's a uh, genre kind of hero. Uh, I, I think he's really great the, at hammy roles. And this is, he's very hammy here. Um, and it's just a great, very entertaining movie to watch. I had a ton of fun with it. Uh, and the way that the they interact together and, and he uses the cop uses Millian's character with that criminal ties to go find a girl who's been abducted. And then the way they introduce the bad guy who's Henry Silva, which again, I don't know how much y'all know Henry Silva. He has this fantastic bad guy face. He's a big genre actor. Uh, and he's just a ruthless criminal in this movie, like zero regard for life. Um, so, so, and he hams it up as well. So they, they play off of each other. Well, um, I, tend to like these kinds of exploitation movies anyways, but I think this is one that is just a really like top of its class representation of, of the genre, of the poliziotechi genre. So uh, would push anybody to go see that. Really fun, entertaining, great cycle, uh, bicycle movie, uh, exercise cycle movie. <laughs> um, and then on the complete opposite end of the spectrum, I just recently saw, so Vinegar Syndrome partner labels, they've been really expanding the, the genres of films that they're now releasing through their distribution um, company, which is called OCN Distribution. And one of their new partners is, is a company called Big World Pictures. And the first release is uh, Sai Ming Lang's first movie, Rebels of the Neon God. And it is awesome. Like, I think this is, I, I'm gonna move it up to being one of the movies that I use if people want to kind of like dip their toes in the water of slow cinema, because it is hundred percent slow cinema in what you would expect with the long takes and minimal dialogue and a lot of the kind of, you know, traits of the, of that subgenre. but it's also extremely engaging and kind of surprisingly, there's a lot going on. Um, and the way that he kind of interweaves the characters lives together, 
it makes the audience kind of a voyeur because uh, we know things that none of the that some of the characters don't know. So because we can see the whole story uh, uh, from a, almost like a like a God view or something, you know, like from above, like we're watching it from above, because we have that perspective, we're seeing things that not all the characters know about, and it adds to some of the the richness of the of the experience of watching it. Um, and it is definitely slow cinema, but I think highly engaging and really strong characters uh, that are created and, and great uh, interplay between the characters and beautiful cinematography and a nice kind of time capture of, of Taiwanese or, you know, type, life in Taipei in, in the early 90s. So um, yeah, loved it a lot and would recommend anybody watch it. Yeah, it sounds interesting. I was just quickly reading up about it just while you were talking. Um, I mentioned earlier that I bought my first uh, film from that director. I haven't watched it yet. Goodbye, Dragon Inn. If I like that, I'll definitely look into more of his work. Uh, where Where did you get that copy of that film from? Who you said someone weird put it out? Well, so Vinegar Syndrome selling it through their website now, right? Because it's a partner label. But Fractured Visions. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, I'm getting them confused. Big World Pictures is only selling through Vinegar Syndrome right now, and maybe directly through their website. I'll see if there's a region B release for it. I don't think there is. It's, it feels like the, the crazy thing about, well, I don't know how, I mean, the interesting thing, I guess, about this movie is this is the type of film that Criterion would have, you know, definitely could put out. Like it wouldn't be surprising at all to see this in their catalog. And it feels almost like mischievous or like cheating to buy it from Vinegar Syndrome's website. It's kind of like a, a <laughs> they're playing against type, uh, but it's a, it's a great, really, good good film and it's probably streaming if nothing else yeah it's definitely not a not doesn't have a region b release anyway but uh i'm sure i can probably get my hands on it somewhere terrible exercise bike movie <laughs> well if it's a blu-ray i wouldn't be watching on the exercise bike anyway um oh. i don't have a don't have a tv and where i have my bikes that's fine that's definitely more of a is, is it streaming no okay <laughs> i'm not watching it while cycling then nice 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 That wraps up this week's episode of They Live By Film. If you want to read more of our thoughts, visit theylivebyfilm.com. And you can also follow our Letterboxd, Reddit, and Instagram accounts from the links in the description. For now, take care.